there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to launch a technology startup or perhaps in running for an elected office while you're still in college and winning, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest co-founded an international technology startup in 2008 that was recently named as one of Fast Company Magazine's world's most innovative companies. And before that, he ran for the Maine State House while he was a senior in college and won, serving out three terms in elected office. But before I introduce you to former Congressman Tom Davidson, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you a sneak peek into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do, my friends. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee, and all those words are smushed together, .org, and the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my espresso lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Tom Davidson, the co-founder and chief executive officer of EverFi, an international technology company that's driving social change through education to address the most challenging issues affecting society, ranging from financial wellness to prescription drug safety to workplace conduct and other critical topics. Since starting EverFi in 2008, Tom has led the company from a startup to a thriving organization with 550 employees serving more than 3,300 customers, including several Fortune 500 companies, financial institutions, as well as colleges and universities. Tom has been a leader in ed technology or ed tech for more than 20 years. While he was still a senior at Bowdoin College in Maine, Tom ran for the Maine House of Representatives and he was elected in an upset. He ended up serving out not only that term, but three consecutive terms before deciding not to go for re-election. During his time in the Maine House of Representatives, Tom also served as one of the youngest committee chairs. I think it's interesting that he was one of the youngest and not the youngest committee chair as chairman of the Utilities and Education Committee, where he led efforts to expand the wiring of schools and libraries across the state. Tom, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I'm wired up. I'm wired up. Thank you for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. So what kind of coffee do you drink in your house? I am, you know, I go between bulletproof and star and just good old Starbucks, you know, just I don't know what to do if I don't have one or the other. So so wait a minute, you drink bulletproof. Does that mean you're a Dave Asprey fan? 
<laughs> I am. I love that company. I Me love too. that company. Yeah, no, it's great. So, do you, uh, do you add any MCT butter or any of that stuff? Yeah, you know, the the farthest I've gone thus far has been adding butter to it. Until my wife yelled at me about my heart and cholesterol, but yeah, I'm still a bit of a rookie on the additives there, but I love it. Well, I can help you out there. Thank I am, you. I, I am need super it. big into it. I hope when you talk about butter, you're talking about clarified butter, ghee. Sure, of course. <laughs> You're giving me right. too much credit. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. You're gonna learn that line. brain health is not my strong suit after yeah. at the end of this interview. Oh, I I seriously doubt that. But the importance here, just for our young listeners, of adding ghee is that it's fat and it actually helps your brain. So the MCT oil and the ghee together, which P.S. I have in my coffee is actually really good. It's a great way for your brain to get the good fats that it needs and to kind of wake it up to have a great day. So enough on the health side. (laughs) And before we get into your time as an elected representative in Maine, I would love for us to talk, Tom, about what you're doing right now as the co-founder and CEO of EverFi. And first, for our young listeners who may not be familiar with the terminology that I was using in the intro, what does it mean to say that EverFi is an educational technology company? So EverFi is an ed tech company. We basically build out really what I think are very sophisticated learning platforms. They're done all online. So think of these as 5-hour, 10-hour, 20-hour courses in some cases. They're consumed either on your desktop or your mobile phone or your iPad or Chromebook or whatever it might be. And we're able to build... They use all the latest and greatest of like social gaming and video and short-form interactions and, and survey tools and what they call adaptive pathing, the ability to kind of move students based on certain questions that you answer. And and then we implement that across millions of users. We have about 6.2 million learners who use our courses every year. Got it. Okay. So could you talk a little bit more about what EverFi does? What are all the courses that you offer up and who's your target audience? Sure. So EverFi is kind of a unique animal in that I always tell people, you'll never see us build a biology class. We think there are people who are really great at building what all of us would describe as core curriculum, things like English or you know reading skills or something. There are hundreds and hundreds of companies who do that. We've chosen a, a different path. We look out on the landscape and say, what are either areas that are very much left out of the normal school day? I often talk about it as the grout between the tiles. So you think about things like financial literacy, college readiness, student loan preparation, certain like data science skills that are left out of the normal school day and and other things. And then also on the other side, what are really big, seemingly intractable social problems that exist that, that teachers are trying to figure out, parents are trying to figure out, they've got to go harvest the parts of the internet to find, you know, what's best practices or not. And we try and build those all into a curriculum that they can implement in their schools. So these are going to be things like sexual assault prevention. They're going to be things like bullying prevention, digital wellness, areas around loneliness or character development and mental wellness. And we don't think that a lot of those have a good answer to them in terms of curriculum in school. So we build those out. 
And the, what's interesting is we started the business focused around K-12, really specifically around high school. But then we went downstream into K-8 through and middle school. And then we went upstream into college and the workplace. So we really cover it womb to tomb. I mean, we have first graders on our platform doing summer learning loss and the challenge of kids losing 30% of their reading and math skills over the course of the summer. And we run for 1,300 unique universities, the alcohol responsibility sexual assault prevention programs for most of the major universities in the country. And then about 2,000 very big companies that range from the biggest to the biggest use our software to train people internally at their companies. Okay. So if I understand you correctly, what your course offerings are really focus on critical life skills for students, if we're talking about the K through 12, to kind of help them deal with real life issues, whether it's the bullying, mental wellness, trying to think about getting ready for college and what that's going to require financially, and then in terms of their careers, what kind of careers might they want to pursue? Is that correct? It's a great rundown. Yep. All right. Why did you decide to focus on those skills? Well, I it was very clear that some of these areas, we started off in financial education. I thought just personally, I thought it was crazy that we graduate from high school and college and go through our education and we we will learn the fundamentals of, you know, physics and certain civics education, other things. But a student got out and had to literally just learn on the job as it related to when they get their first W-2, how they fill out their first FAFSA form, when they get their first job, what are pay- payroll taxes, what's a mortgage, what's compounding interest, how does the stock market work? I just thought that it was bananas that we didn't teach that in high schools. And that was the real impetus for the company. Quickly after that, we learned that there were these other areas that kind of shared that DNA that were left out of the school day. Parents were trying to figure it out. There wasn't a good answer to it. And you could use technology to scale that. And that we wanted to stick to those open field opportunities versus being the 67th player to, you know, math education or something where there were people already doing it. Got it. And what about balancing your checkbook? Do you teach that? Because God knows I we didn't do. that until I got out into the working world. All of us did. And you know what? It's What's interesting about this is, listen, cycles of poverty and payday lending and and the crushing effects of high interest you know loans and that stuff like those have plagued high poverty areas for for generations and i think that that's a really great contribution that we've made but this is something that affects everybody. I hear from, you know, more and more parents all the time. So we have millions of students that go through this. They say, my kids don't know squat about how a mortgage works, how credit cards work, how to balance a checkbook. And I think this cuts across every demographic. And there's huge opportunity to scale that in the education sphere. And I think we'll be better for it. We have over a trillion dollars of student loan debt in the country. And the defaults on that are going to be crushing by having better education along the way. We could have helped students in a much better way. Yeah. And here's a public service announcement. Don't get a credit card. Or if you do get a credit card, pay it off every month because it isn't free money. And it might be better for you to get a bank loan that you're using 
then it, and certainly it's very difficult for somebody who's right out of school to get a bank loan. So I totally get that, but pay off your credit card because the compounding debt that you are amassing is what's going to drag you down. It's a great point. It's a great point. Tom, your business model is a really interesting one because all of your classes are free for students and teachers and sometimes I guess for parents. So you're not charging schools or state governments that have that have to fund the schools for this service. Instead, you're focused on a partnership model in which companies are underwriting these courses. Why would companies want to do that? Well, this is, you know, this business model innovation, I think, is something that's really unique to EverFi. I think we're the only company in the world that's ever even remotely scaled something like this kind of a business model. The origins of it really come from my experience in in the state legislature. And there's two things. One was, I just learned very early on, I sat on the taxation committee, and I learned that school funding formulas in the United States are just structurally set up to disadvantage kids in high poverty areas. They have for a very long time. So I did not want to have this be another company that relies on the districts that have surpluses and sidecar private foundations that run next to them where families with means would be able to afford this and districts could afford this and then have everybody else kind of left out in the rain. So that was like a a fundamental core tenet of our business model. The second piece of it was what you learn in education is because it's so provincial, it's so localized, it's county by county, state by state. There's no federal kind of mandate that comes on what gets funded and what doesn't for the most part. So it's really left up to local school boards and others to decide priorities. What you wind up having is this yo-yo effect and stuff is there for two years or four years and then a governor comes in and changes it all. And, you know, a president gets elected and one minute it's race to the top or no child left behind or whatever the next flavor of the month or the year is all well-intentioned, all coming from differing political philosophies and others. But what it left school districts with and kids with ultimately was this yo-yoing back and forth of were things going to be there? Were requirements going to be there? Are things going to be there one month and gone the next or one year and gone the next? So that was what we were really trying to get at where we actually felt that You could rely on business funding. You could rely on foundation money with more predictability and steadiness than you could local governments. And that was a fundamental tenet of our business model where we build out really fascinating curriculum. We team up with the private sector who pays 100% of the cost of that over a multi-year commitment. So districts know that it's not going to be a one-and-done enterprise here for them. And we implement it and run it all for partners on both sides of that. So it's a really, really fascinating business model. Love it. But what is the incentive for companies to want to do that? So companies have been doing these types of things for a long time. If you go to pretty much any Fortune 1000 company or even financial institutions or others, they've all been running a lot of front of the classroom employee engagement programs to help kids. They may be tutoring, reading, providing resources, providing books, providing the scoreboard, you know, in the corner of the of the gym. So there's a long history 
of corporate engagement to help out and kind of step in and fill the voids of funding that is often left by wildly under-resourced schools in, in every corner of the United States. I think that this is just a new take on them getting behind third-party curriculum and areas that can be provided to kids using education technology. I just think it's a next step of that. And it's something that by our building it and being able to license this again and again to corporations and foundations and corporate foundations and others, often political leaders, governors, treasurers, whoever it might be, we have the ability for them to get the network effects of not having it be so expensive for them to build it and deploy it by getting the benefits of everybody else doing it as well. Nice. I think another way of putting it is the private sector are often looking for opportunities to do what's known as corporate social responsibility or CSR. It's a wonderful way for them to burnish their brands to say, we care about our communities. We care about, in this case, underserved communities or young people who wouldn't have access to these kinds of classes and education. And it's also great for their employees. They feel good about it the way that Tom was just describing. So for our listeners, Tom, who may be in college right now and are interested either in technology or education or both, what are the kinds of positions that you're usually most interested in hiring or right in the middle of the coronavirus? What do you think would be most useful for them to study? They may not even have to major in it, but at least to become familiar with and to start developing some of this expertise that would be attractive to a company like EverFi? It's a great question. You know, one of the things that we think are, are just going to more and more be the table stakes of any career are some kind of proficiency in coding and data science, analytics, having a core, those core underpinnings as you begin your career is just really helpful. I think it it helps whether you wind up being a salesperson or in marketing, not necessarily meaning like you have to go into product development or engineering or data. Having those skills is just a big leg up. We all love it when we see it when we're hiring. We think it shows a level of curiosity. We think it allows you to move across the organization to see things in the matrix that people wouldn't normally see. So one thing is I would recommend is if you're looking to go into ed tech, you should really do two things. You should get some of those skills underneath you. You don't have to take it as a major. You certainly don't have to go spend a bunch of money to get these skills. You can find them online. There are great places for you to learn it, like Pluralsight, General Assembly, others, and learn those skills. The second thing is, I think that we all want to see that our hearts are in the right place, that this comes from an experience that you show wanting to lift kids, that you care a ton about the journey of kids. So I love it when I see someone who's learned those tactical skills that I just mentioned, but also says, listen, I've spent five hours a week or two hours a week or one hour a week mentoring a student. I work in a school-based program or in high poverty areas. I, I've taught a class every year doing XYZ or served as a teacher's aide. Like, I think we all all want to see that you cared enough coming up along the way to really get your hands dirty and in the types of pressures often that get put on kids in schools and the gaps that need to be filled in their education. So we're going to get into your time as an undergrad in a little bit, but suffice it to say, you didn't major in computer science or engineering or in education. 
Did you take any coding classes or any tech-related classes? This is probably going to show my age, so I'll just say it. You know, as a 48-year-old exec, I, I can still remember walking into the basement of our college library and a friend of mine saying that he was on email with a friend of his. Uh, I specifically remember at the University of Colorado. I was at Bowdoin at the time. So I am such a dinosaur as it relates to this. I did take a computer science class that I think would be all but irrelevant at this point in terms of what I learned. So I didn't major in it. I didn't minor in it. I was not somebody who came at this from a technical background. I really came at it from more of like a policy orientation, if that makes sense. But it doesn't mean I don't encourage people. I wish I had more of those skills. And I frankly wish I had had developed more of them along the way, even as I was building Everfox. So if you're a dinosaur, then I must be like a microorganism. Oh my God, I don't know. Wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, I remember, Tom, walking into the computer science center to use the computer because when I was in school in the 80s, you didn't have your own personal computers. They didn't exist. You had to go and use that monstrous computer that like was the size of a building. So true. You like launches, you know, space shuttles now. So yeah, you're totally right. Oh my God. So, okay. You came at it from a policy standpoint. You did take a computer class and computer science class. What made you think you could build an ed tech company and how did you go about doing it? Well, it's funny. We started the way every great ed tech company probably does, or technology company, I always joke, in in the back of an RV driving through the, (laughs) the Mississippi Delta. You know, I knew this idea. I really knew this idea was a good idea in that I knew that there was this outsized demand for these types of skills, the types of things that we knew we were going to teach. And I knew that there was a way to use technology to disintermediate that. And for the first year, we honestly, we took $800. There was three of us. We rented an RV. We were all dead broke. I mean, not a penny between us and started driving around the South in Alabama, in the Tigua Reservation and in Texas. We you know, went through the Mississippi Delta and East Baton Rouge Parish and places where we knew they were incredibly hard hit areas. They were enormous amount of talent, lots of pressure on the school districts in terms of funding and just sat with teachers and mayors. And all of that came from, I think, a real understanding that Education is heavily political. These are decisions that are made locally by school districts, by school boards, by administrators and others that were highly local. And so we needed to go local. I haven't seen many great ed tech companies get built in fancy lofts in Tribeca or you know the meatpacking district. I see them born out of the understanding of real problems localized. I love that. And The other thing, so you mentioned you were with a couple of buddies, one of whom, John, went to Bowdoin with you. Maybe both of them did. They both did. Yeah, they both did. And I think Bowdoin is probably scratching its head to this day how we built even a moderately successful company based on our GPAs. We've all known each other for 25 years. John and Ray worked with each other at Kaplan in the education space for many years after college. So there's a lot of history there, a lot of trust there. They are brothers to, to say the least. Well, I think that's just a great example of how the relationships the friendships that you make while you're on college campuses, that is your the beginning of your professional network. 
It sure is. And I think it's, it's, I tell students this all the time when I speak at colleges and others, your network, it begins then. I mean, some of the people who have been the most helpful to me as I've built EverFi have been those relationships that I had in high school and college. And you have to tend to them. You can't just drop in on them every couple of years. You got to keep them warm. You got to water them. You know, you really have to invest in them. The other takeaway, at least for me, Tom, and let me know if this resonates with you, is that when you were in your RV driving around meeting with people in the school systems of those states and those communities, you were actually testing your product by listening and asking questions and then seeing if it would resonate with those communities, which is really what the lean startup methodology is all about. There's a great book called The Lean Startup by Eric Reese. And the guy who actually is the godfather of the lean startup methodology, Steve Blank, did an interview with me on Time for Coffee. And our listeners should check that out. It's episode 333 because you need to go to your consumers to see if your product is going to resonate. Correct. And and never stop going. There have been some painful lessons for us along the way where we stopped listening, where you get complacent. So that process never stops. Before I got on this call, I had a literally had a call with our executive team about setting up during this coronavirus, you know, where we're all tethered here at home, setting up these innovation calls with 600 of our customers just saying, what can we do? What can we build? Where are we falling down? How can we get better? That never, ever stops. Okay, let's flash back to when you were an undergrad at Bowdoin with your buddies. You majored in government and African-American studies. I'm going to ask you a question that I ask all my guests, and I know you have a super interesting answer and story in response. Did you know, Tom, what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I think that I had, well, when I graduated, I made this at the time, it didn't seem very logical and still doesn't seem very logical to run for the state legislature when I was in college. I'd always been really interested in politics. I'd always been really interested in public policy. I thought that I would run someday down the road. I'm sure I was much more ambitious and starry-eyed than I probably remember at this point. But I did know that I always wanted to try to run for office someday. I didn't think it was going to be when I was 22 or whatever old I was. And a lot of it was informed by this sense that I really did want to do some kind of public service. And I had considered politics just watching it kind of a hobby my whole life and the mirroring together of those two gave me that opportunity much earlier than I would have guessed. So when you graduated, you were already a state rep. Did you have to have a side hustle to afford to do that? Or was that your full-time gig? Yeah. So it was even trickier. I, I ran, I had my primary, I think my primary was two days after I graduated. So I kind of ran my senior spring, knocked on 30,000 some odd doors, tried to graduate in good standing, played varsity sports. It was like this crazy period. Won my primary against a really wonderful guy who had been in the seat before and then ran the following fall in the general election in a three-way. So it was an incredible experience. And I started to work at a really interesting software company in Brunswick, Maine called Newport 
data. This was in the time when we were shipping disks. And that business was a software company that tracked the bulk active pharmaceutical market for pharmaceutical companies as they were purchasing things to make their drugs. (laughs) So couldn't have been more random. It was a great experience. I was a salesperson there and I learned how to just pick up the phone and call people. So what did you learn from serving in government in the main state house that you took with you into building Everfly? Well, there were a bunch of different things. One was that it gave me an incredible sense of compassion and empathy for what was going on in people's lives. I think like the multitude of challenges and problems that people face day to day and actually the ability for local governments to solve so many of those. And they ranged from people having their power shut off to people getting access to prescription drugs to just the things that challenge people every day. I loved it. I loved waking up with 70 phone calls that had come in with very specific problems that people had in and the ability to take those on. So I I loved the kind of like the micro engagement day to day. What was interesting to me about EdTech in general was trying to find some of those global problems and then scale that. Like a lot of things that I was seeing day to day with people who lived in my district was just immense pressure on them financially, access to healthcare, things that had happened to people in their lives that were really challenging. So as we built this out, it was the idea of how could you take some of the answers those problems and scale them. And and that's really been the core underlying principle of EverFi since the day we started it. Love it. So just before you started building EverFi in 2008, you spent a year working for Village Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital firm focusing on the media and financial services sectors. And you work there as a venture partner. Is that right? Correct. Correct. How did that experience come into play when you started building Everfi? Well, that was an invaluable experience just because you had the ability. I worked with some really, really smart investors. And you had the ability to look out on hundreds and hundreds of companies that that we had funded in the past that we looked at who were seeking funding. And sometimes we said no to them. But the key was you got to see business model after business model, entrepreneur after entrepreneur. You got to see things work and fail, often at the same time, many times over. And I just think the reps that I was able to get in of just seeing companies operate was super helpful. And I pulled a lot from those various pieces where I was like, I'm not going to do that or that really worked. Let's double down on that. I had seen a little bit of that in, in certain movies that had played out during that time. You raised more than $250 million of venture funding from some of the world's leading institutions and technology leaders in building EverFi, including... Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt, the founder of Twitter, Evan Williams. No pressure. No pressure whatsoever. Nothing you can do to impress any of these people. So clearly, you learned right. (laughs) You learned right (laughs) how to do it. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I think this is this is an incredibly humbling experience. And those folks would be the first people to tell you that even though they've built extraordinary world changing companies, this whole entrepreneurship thing is a humbling gig. And unfortunately, the only way to really learn it is on the job. And so I wake up every day with I'm super aggressive, but I have a lot of humility because this job humbles you. And you know, I, I remember sitting here at a time when we're doing this interview, when we're all locked down because of this devastating virus and the coronavirus. I remember coming into February being like, man, I really feel like we've kind of got our arms around this business right now and feel like we're on a good clip and we're growing and we're profitable. And, and you know, I think this is going to be a really great year. And I feel like the universe was just kind of like, hold my beer for a minute and drop this on us. So you just never know what's going to come around the corner on these things. Actually, that's a great segue into one of my last questions, Tom, something I try to ask all my guests. Could you share a time in your professional life when you really struggled? And maybe it's right now, could be way back when, but most importantly, how you persevered and maybe a lesson that you learned in the process. Yeah, I think that everyone who is these things, what I'll say is these things are very hard to, they're just incredibly hard to build these companies in general. I think in the ed tech space, they're even harder. There's thousands of companies that start every couple of years in the cycles of, of education technology, probably only nine or 10 achieve a scale where they kind of break a, a revenue, a certain revenue cap. And, and so one, they're just pretty hard to do. I think that every entrepreneur who does go through that, hits that point where the levers that you were able to pull in the past and the things that you used to be able to put in play don't work for you anymore at scale. And that doesn't mean you walk away from your founders. One of my investors says there's often founder calcification. You just you, you rely on the things that got you there, but they really are not the things that are going to get you to the next phase. You have to scale them. You have to hire people that have been there before. You know, We went through that about a year and a half ago where I felt there was some calcification that had set in. We truly needed new thinking. We needed people to come in from the outside who had scaled organizations from 500 people to many thousands of people. And that's a really uncomfortable time. Like It makes you challenge things, think differently. And I don't think any of us turned a lot of cartwheels during that year-long period where we were getting through that. You have multiple examples of those along the way. When you hit 5 million, when you hit 20 million, when you hit 50 million, when you hit 100 million, like you hit those multiple times. It isn't a one-time thing. And it's always happening. And you just got to get your arms around the fact that that's going to happen. So what's the lesson that you think you learned in the process? I think the lesson is, one, you've got to have your core values in place. Your your values and your vision need to be pretty consistent. It doesn't mean that you can't move on the dime structurally. But when you go through a crisis or you go through a challenging period, is not the time to be doing soul searching on who you are. It's a good time to do soul searching on how you're going about your business. So you've got to have your like core beliefs and your core tenants in place. But the flip side of it is you have to be agile and you have to make decisions really fast. You cannot be in a situation where you're sitting around in high growth companies and doing planning for six or seven months. Like I call them decision grenades. You've got to be getting these things out of your hands as soon as you possibly can. So I just think surrounding yourself with people and managers who have done it before. Two is 
double down on the people that got you there who have unlimited talent and no ceiling above their ability to grow. And three, make decisions quickly along the way. You can never take time out to do some massive reimagination of your business for six or seven or eight months at a time. You got to move fast. Before I ask you the very last question, Tom, for our young listeners who are graduating in May or June, who may have been or may be now considering a career in ed tech, considering the coronavirus, what advice do you have for them? Do you think this industry is something that they should still pursue? And what advice do you have for them? Yeah, my advice is right now, sitting here in April, we're going through great dislocation and great disruption. Everyone's trying to find their footing in a world where there isn't an immediate forecast for how this is all going to open up. Recognizing that people may be listening to this two months from now, a month from now, a year from now, I don't think that what I'm about to say is going to change. If anything, this moment in time of distance learning plans and the dislocation of kids and families is going to shine a bright light that Education technology needs to be considered a utility. School districts and others and universities need to be ready for at any time in a world where this probably won't be the last pandemic that we face to move their students online and probably move their students online in a much more aggressive way than they would have before. I fundamentally believe ed tech is going to be a winner coming out of this. I think ed tech is going to be a growth market coming out of this. I think ed tech is going to hire more aggressively than other markets coming out of this because I think it's going to shine a light on the inequity that lives in the system of families and households having access to broadband and devices. I think it's going to move curriculum online. It's going to move kind of digital engagement to the forefront versus terrestrial engagement. It's going to be a growth market. Get your hands dirty. Get in the communities. Volunteer for kids in high poverty areas mentor people, like show that you are interested in this, learn the, the skills that are going to transition this to that I talked about, data science, coding, web development, UX design, learn those skill sets and put yourself in a position to grab this wave when we come out of it. I really fundamentally believe it's going to happen. Awesome. So final question, if you could go back to Bowdoin and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Tom, what advice would you give yourself? I think a couple of things are I would have spent more time learning technical skills. Like I, I would have both had a good computer science department. And number one, I just would have built an undergirder of better tech skills, even with what I what you could have learned in the in the mid nineties. The second thing is I would have absolutely gone just neck deep in literature and English. It was one of the great places with Hawthorne and Longfellow having gone there and studied there. And I regret that I didn't bone up on my English and, and the type of skills that I think my friends who did take advantage of. Those are the two things I would have done. So was that because you would have really become an even better writer? Is yeah, that the idea? I think writing is a, is a really underrated and underappreciated skill of running tech companies and it would have helped me for sure. Wow. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? End it, end it with Longfellow and Hawthorne, where it all begins and ends. <laughs> Very nice. Tom, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today, for a little bulletproof wisdom for me and the Time for Coffee community. I hope you and your family stay healthy and safe. 
thank you so much. Thank you. It's a total pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.